as part of the AAPI Heritage Month celebration, our junior producers Kat Baxter and Tin Sapsin hosted the public event at Arizona State University in the spring of 2022. This episode is an excerpt from a panel discussion and Q&A with Dr. Catherine Nakagawa and Donna Chan. Dr. Nakagawa is Associate Professor of Asian Pacific American Studies at ASU and also the owner of the last remaining original Japanese American flower shop in Phoenix. Donna Chan is a former president of the Japanese American Citizen League Arizona chapter. This is Chasing Cherry Blossoms. But would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, yeah. I'm Kathy Nakagawa. I'm actually a native Arizona, and I was born at St. Joseph's Hospital in central Phoenix. And then I taught at UC Irvine before ending up back here at Arizona State University. So I gave a little bit background on what the baseline flower shop is. Could you go a little bit more into that and like why it's important to you? Sure, yeah. So um, in its heyday in the 1950s and 60s, there were seven Japanese American families that grew along Baseline Road. And you wouldn't imagine it now because it's a six lane highway, but there were flower fields and vegetable farms there. So throughout February and March, it would just be, it was incredible to see. There were flowers on both sides of Baseline Road at the foot of South Mountain. People would drive there. It was a two lane highway then, Baseline, so they would stop. It would be bumper to bumper, and they'd pull over, and you could walk through the fields, and then you could go to the stands that all the families、um, ran and buy vegetables and flowers there. Do you have like, any fond memories of that? Would you、oh、share my gosh. with us? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, we,、um, my grandma's house was on the other side of the field, so our farm was, is at the southern part of Baseline, just west of 40th Street. And so my grandma's had her house just on the other side of the field. So we would Like, hop over the irrigation ditch and run through the fields and go see my grandma there and then come back when we were kids. And then we also just had to kind of stay out of the way because they were super busy all the time. So, every, all the weekends and the holidays were spent at the shop. So, we learned early on how to you know, make corsages and help with arrangements and tag things for delivery. So, I know that you're a professor here at ASU、oh. and really juggling between the flower shop and working here. How did you get started in the flower shop business? So, I didn't think I would end up at the flower shop actually at all. I、um, am a professor, and although my family has owned the business for so long, when my dad passed away last year,、um, he had been working right up until a month before he passed away. And so at that point, it was the three of us that owned the business, and my siblings don't live here in Arizona anymore. And so I kind of felt like it was my turn to take over. And then I, I changed the business somewhat. We worked with an artist, Ariana Enriquez, to do a mural on the outside to really liven it up so that we could kind of bring back the sense of the place it was. And we wanted to keep the business going also because it, it's the last remaining flower shop from that era. So we felt like we would lose all that history if we decided to close up. Do you feel like it's kind of a hub for like, the, or like the Asian American community? Because I know that you had an arts and showcase. Yeah, that yeah I, I would love for it to become more of a hub. But yes, one of the things I really wanted to do was have people feel like it's, it's a place where we could use it. So we hosted a storytelling event in March、um, when we had the mural done and we had people tell stories of South Phoenix. And then we、um, did host for the Arizona. Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander for Equity Coalition that worked with the Youth Climate Justice Group in Arizona. We hosted an event where they, had, they brought in a stage. It was much bigger than I expected. They brought in a stage and they had musicians and dancers and they showed short films and they had free food. And so that was a lot of fun to have there. So I'd love to if there's anybody who would like to host an event. We don't charge for it, we're just happy to be in a space for people to. 
um, come together. I think that's amazing. Yeah, because yeah, um, I also wanted to go more in an individual sense. Like, how are you involved with the Japanese American community? I grew up here in Arizona, and we didn't live near where a lot of the other Japanese Americans were, which tended to be more in the Glendale area. And I didn't have any, like you, other Asian American friends really in throughout elementary, middle school, or high school. There was maybe one or two other Asian American families there. But I went, well, I spent one year abroad in Japan. So that was fantastic. And the other thing that really connected me was because I became an affiliate faculty member with Asian Pacific American Studies. And this is going to sound funny, but the first time I walked into an APAS faculty meeting, I suddenly had the sense of, oh, this is what people feel like when they're with people who look like them. It was like I didn't, I could be an individual. I wasn't seen as this Asian American woman because so many of the spaces I was in, I was always the only woman of color in that space. And so when I suddenly was with my APAS colleagues, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. It feels so wonderful. And I think it sounds like really a late point in my life to suddenly realize that, oh, I had internalized all this racism in many ways, right? So through APAS, I suddenly, um, I became head of faculty at one point, and part of my job I saw as really connecting more with the community. And what was interesting was because they knew my family. So they're like, whose kid are you? Are you Nick's kid? Are you, you know, who are you? So then they, they kind of knew of me, and it allowed me entry into these spaces in ways that I know was, I was really privileged to do. And then uh, lastly, I would like to go into um, what advice do you have to younger Asian Americans, Japanese Americans, about finding their identity like you did through either academia or through just finding a community? Oh. I, I would say, you know, sometimes I think it's intimidating to go into communities where people are very well connected. And I've thought about this in different ways where I know, like, um, I've heard students say when they've tried to approach, like, the Asian Pacific American Student Coalition here, it seems like everybody knows each other and they get along so well and it can be very intimidating. I had to keep, like, doing the work and, and gradually people got to know me and I developed these relationships. And so... Now I can say, you know, how many years has it been? People will, will call me. So I know it's really hard to do, but I, I will say, you know, sometimes maybe you can go with a friend. So whenever I have to enter into a space that I don't know people as well, I'll always try to take someone with me because at least there's someone I can talk to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Introduce yourself a little bit and uh, kind of explain what the JACL is and what you did for them? Um, my name is Donna Chung. I am immigrant, uh, Chinese American, naturalized US citizen. JACL stands for Japanese American Citizens League. Um, the national organization is edging in on its 100th anniversary. And then there's also local chapters. So the Arizona chapter will be 85 years old in a few years. So since you are uh, Chinese American, what motivated you to become involved in the Japanese-American Citizens League? Uh, several years ago, there was a traveling Smithsonian exhibit that came into uh, Phoenix, and that was the first exhibit on Japanese-American wartime incarceration called A More Perfect Union. And it was such a huge project. The Arizona Humanities Council was developing a lot of companion programs surrounding the exhibit and pretty much put out a call for volunteers, and I just showed up 
to be a volunteer, and that's how I came to know the local Japanese-American community, and for the first time really learn about Japanese-American history and how it relates and affects all Americans. How did you transfer the, the experiences of the Japanese-Americans to your own experiences? I think for me, what really resonated with the Japanese-American experience, especially with JCL and what Carolyn uh, Clawson was talking about in your previous interviews about um, standing up for your rights. And when you see Japanese-Americans who suffer so much during World War II with their own experiences, and after the fact, they would step forward and say, no, 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 you did this wrong, you need to right this wrong. And to me, a nation who could do that is a strong nation. A nation who could admit it's wrong is a strong nation. And I was all in after that, because I didn't become a US citizen until I was in college, because I wasn't too sure up to that point. Have you ever felt the restriction of the model minority uh, stereotype? Yeah, I think as uh, a little bit different than if you were born here about model minority, because I was immigrant when I went to school here. Um, I was like the only Asian person in class maybe the only Asian family, you know, on the street within the neighborhood. And so there was always this implicit pressure of I have to behave myself because if I misbehave, then they would think all Asian people are bad or all Asian people or all Asian children would misbehave. And even to this day, I could sit very still for a very long time. Even, you know, in my old age, I would think that, uh, some people would think that's very odd that I could be very still for a long time. But that's just from conditioning as being a young Asian immigrant child and understanding that you hold the reputation of entire continent on your shoulders. Do you think that this myth is um, shared equally among all the states, or do you think there are some states that have it kind of worse than others? I think stereotypes shift with time. Um, I think with when you have national leadership um, blaming the coronavirus on specific people with certain skin color with an Asian face, it doesn't help. And so I ride on the American part of really believing in the U.S. Constitution and supporting civil rights and civil liberties and fighting for other communities who would also be under-targeted um, for whatever reason, like after 9-11, when the Muslim community were being similarly targeted. Um, JCL and other Japanese Americans came out very forcefully in support of that community and so that basically concentration camps would not be showing up throughout the United States. I know you've done some work with senior citizens. So what kind of motivated you to do that? Yeah, so when I first started volunteering for JCL for the Japanese American community, I pretty much worked with seniors. Part of that privilege is to just sit there and listen to their stories. What was interesting to me in recent years with the anti-Asian violence that came forward due to the pandemic, due to the misplaced uh, understanding of blame with national leadership, is the fact that for younger generations, Asian Americans think the violence against Asians is a new thing. But if you listen to the stories, especially of um, Japanese Americans locally, they could tell you that when they were farming, and many Japanese American families were farmers in Arizona, when they were farming, there would be such anti-Japanese sentiments and violence about bombing of their farms and just the bombings and trying to break up the irrigation system, you know, try to flood the farms. 
things like that are not new. And I think it really empowers the community, empowers each of us to understand that other people, other generations have weathered that storm. And so it's, we have the strength to weather that type of violence too. We're gonna move on to uh, Q&A sections. My name is Hajar. Um, I'm an Iraqi American. I actually was like talking to my mom and um, I'm first generation, like my mom and my dad came here um, in 1999, I think. And I was talking to my mom I, like about the research projects I was gonna be doing, like about Iraqi Americans and whatnot. And she said like, well, what are you? Like, do you think you're Iraqi or do you think you're American? I said, I'm both. And she got mad. <laughs> she was like, no, you're Iraqi. Like, like, just because you were born here doesn't mean that like, you're losing your Iraqi identity. I was like, I'm not losing it. Like, I'm both now. How would you advise to like, go about like this hesitance of like, accepting that this is who we are now, you know? And like bringing out our voices through that. I think part of your question is also assuring your, your mom, it sounds like, that you're not going to be losing the part of you that is important to her in, in some ways. And that's always a, a harder challenge because I think many parents, I remember feeling that I, I married someone who wasn't of my background. And I know that was hard for my parents, even though, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but it still felt like them, like we wanted you to marry someone of Japanese background. And didn't you meet somebody like that? And not here in Arizona, no, I didn't. So it, they, had a, they had a really hard, a, a bit of a hard time with that. Um, so I, I think it's something that, that they, it takes a little bit, but continuing to talk and communicate is so important. I would think that part of, you know, that going back to expanding the definition of American, you know, if your mom could see that the definition of American includes people like you, people like us, she would feel more comfortable. She wants you to hold on to something because she didn't want you to be lost. But if you feel like you're forging this different identity that is somewhat different than your, not leaving your parents behind, but somewhat different than your parents, because I could say as an immigrant, my identity is different than from my parents, right? So, so it's part of your job, our job, to make sure that the definition of American gets expanded so that your mom could feel safe here. So that she's like, okay, I get you. Um, my name's Devin, I'm Cantonese Burmese and I grew up uh, in Portland, Oregon. So in the United States, um, I kind of experienced a lot of interesting things happen as I moved from Portland to Arizona uh, for school. Portland, at least the part I lived in, had a very like diverse group of different kinds of people. So I never really felt like an outsider too much, but it has kind of reversed when I've come to Arizona where I felt a lot more isolated as an Asian American. My friends who are Korean American, Viet American, even Filipino American, Japanese American, all got similar comments and um, similar reactions to like their appearance and so oftentimes like Asian Americans are considered in that sense a monolith. How have you seen individual cultures be able to be represented clearly and how can we do more work in that area to kind of make sure the diversity of Asian Americans is fully realized and fully uh, accepted in this country? So uh, what I heard in your question was a lot of different things. One was this idea of Asian, right? Which a lot of people don't, a lot of individuals, especially in New York, they don't use the term Asian to identify themselves. They talk about their specific country of origin or their culture, how, 
how they identify themselves. So sometimes Asian just gets used as a shorthand for other people, like, oh, I'm Asian. So then they be, we sort of participate in that in some ways because politically it makes sense to identify as a group with Asian. But in order to differentiate, it's, it's interesting because I remember um, my daughter when she was young um, was waiting to get on a school bus and the kid cut in front of her and said, why don't you go back to Japan? And when we talked about it later, she had this strange reaction to it. Part of it was like, oh, they at least got my country of origin right, but it was a racist comment. And so they didn't say China, they said Japan, because oftentimes it was go back to China. So there was a strange reaction, like, oh, okay, they got that part right, what, what do I do? <laughs> Which is so funny, right? But it goes, gets a little bit at your question, like you wanna be seen and you want your individual background and culture to be recognized and understood and not part of this monolith. And so it does go back to, you know, how do we tell these stories in better ways? And so there's a movement in, I think, in media to make sure that doesn't happen, to do more accurate and true casting. Um, but it just requires a lot more individuals getting out there and talking about these things and telling their stories so that people understand more. But yeah. the, I mean, basically they're telling you don't belong that you're not American and, you know, it's just our job to just push back. That's why Kathy teaches and I'm an activist. <laughs> Hi, I'm Indian American and I felt like when I was growing up, a lot of what I felt like to be Indian in America, I learned through like the media that I watched. I would watch like all sorts of little like animated shows. When I got into school, I was completely miserable because I was like, oh, I really don't like this. I don't like this studying. I'm not getting the grades that like my, my idols on TV got. And now I'm realizing like, oh, those broad stereotypes that were put on to like children's media. And I was wondering if you feel like that can change with like up and coming like films and media that's targeted towards children. I, that's one of the drawbacks of the media, the way the, the broad media that we have right now, that there's these gross stereotypes that have one character and that's the only image that certain groups have of anyone outside of their family. And so I do think it's changing, um, but part of the difficulty and change is that there's still a lot of people at the top in power who make those decisions about what gets made and who gets the funding to do those things. Um, but one of the things we talk about in the media class is how new media, so th the, the fact that there are web-based um, series and other kinds of things where people can tell their own stories much more easily, and that's where some of the stereotypes are changing. Instead of questioning the image, you often turn it on yourself and think there's something wrong with yourself. Yeah. And that's also an example of when the model minority myth gets integrated and internalized by decision makers who are making those images, right? That's what it is. And that going back to your question about modern minority myth, you know, when, when those, when certain stereotypes are internalized by people in power who are making the decisions of what to put out in media and that's, and that's why it's self-limiting because if you're not seeing yourself reflected broadly, you know, then that's, that's why it's damaging. So it's not about good representation, bad representation, but the need for that, the entire spectrum of representation out there, you know, to reflect back to you. My name is D'Angelo. Um, I, I uh, lived in Japan 
and I uh, <clears throat> I still speak Japanese, and um, I had a tremendous experience um, living in Japan. What I learned today is that a lot of families felt like they needed to uh, be a hundred and ten percent American, and 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 I think a lot of my uh, Latino friends here in in Arizona, their families kind of did a similar thing, right? Where they were trying to uh, be totally white, right? Not speak any Spanish. So I wanted to see what your thoughts were on the language, um, kind of carrying the the culture of Japan, and it not really, and, and it being so suppressed here in America, and how's that that's affected uh, the Japanese American experience? You're absolutely right that a lot of the families didn't. Um, well, part of it is that after the war, and so many of the families were incarcerated, it broke up the communities and. Donna's probably heard that story that a lot of people felt like they did have to highlight their American, like I'm an American citizen too, and that meant not showing their Japanese side. I think it, uh, the other part of it is also that the US government, in rounding up people, the initial roundup, they also targeted cultural practices. If you were found in your home with with books in the Japanese language, or if you were a leader of the community and you were fluent in both Japanese and English, they defined that as being suspect. And that puts a pressure onto the people who were incarcerated. And even if you weren't incarcerated, that you're, you're internalizing, right? You're internalizing how you should behave. So at some point you're actually self-policing, would you say that? Yeah. yeah. Well, and then my um, mom's, my mom's dad, he was so angry. He was a leader in their um, Long Beach community. And he was very angry at the government because he was separated from the family at first. So he eventually took the whole family back to Japan. So they repatriated back. Um, and my mom, and then he never returned to the United States. All, I think that goes back to the idea of always having to fight for the definition of what is American. And so that at some point when you say American, and if you speak a language other than English, it should not elevate you within the eyes of the CIA or the FBI as being a suspicious person um, that would be an enemy of the state. It, it just makes no sense, you know. But that, that is the fight for all of you today to expand that definition of American to be a more inclusive definition of what American is and should be. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> this episode was produced by Kat Baxter and Tin Sabsen. Special thanks to Melita Belgrave, Let Isatan, and Sean Arison. Music is composed by Aiko Fukushima, edited by Christine Park, and sound is mixed by Reina Higashitani. <laughs>